you would please open your Bible to Luke chapter 2. Read along with me in Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 8. For these are the very words of God. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. And when the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told to them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen, as it had been told to them. This is quite an incredible account as we continue working through the narrative story These old familiar stories as we've been calling them. And this is after the birth of Christ. So the first week we looked at the birth of Christ announced. And then last week we looked at the birth of Christ. And now that Christ has been born, we're seeing the immediate response. And I'm calling this sermon, The Birth of Christ Celebrated. Christ has been born and as we can see, that brings a great celebration to the people. But before we dive into that further, let's just briefly overview what it is that we just read. The text begins with the same region, so this is near Bethlehem, that there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. Now this is uh, an important verse to many people in the Christmas story because this is one of the main verses that causes such consternation about when we celebrate Christmas. Uh, You've maybe heard if you've ever done any kind of dive, whether a shallow dive or a deep dive, into the debate over when we date Christmas, this tends to be a really popular verse. And the reason it's so popular is because historically we have a decent account of when shepherds would be outside with their sheep. And historically what we know about shepherds of this day, December was not usually a month where the shepherds were outside tending their sheep, keeping watch as they grazed. And so oftentimes people will say December 25th is really not a good day to celebrate Christmas because it doesn't look as if Jesus was likely born in December. And so let me just make a quick note about that. Uh, I think they're probably right, but I think it's also probably pretty irrelevant. Uh, It amazes me how often these debates over exactly when we celebrate it become so important to people. Uh, The Bible doesn't tell us very much, and so I don't think it really matters to God so much that we know. Uh, Just to give you a quick, very, very quick history, though, is why December 25th, whether you accept that date or not, there actually, believe it or not, there really are a lot of good reasons for it that I'm not going to go into today. 
But the main reason of the December 25th date has nothing to do with what the vast majority of people you encounter tell you. It has nothing to do with the Roman Empire overtaking some pagan holiday and making it a Christian holiday. That's really, really bad history. It's very difficult to prove that historically. It sounds good to people, so we eat it up and we buy it. It makes sense logically, but it just simply is really bad history. If you hear someone say that, you've, you were talking to someone who really doesn't know what they're talking about, someone who really hasn't done their homework. Uh, that is a theory, but scholarship generally think, uh, time-wise, it's, it's not very uh, accurate because those pagan holidays, when that conversion happened, we see people practicing Christmas on December and debating the date of Christmas before those holidays. We have any record of those pagan holidays. Christmas is more ancient than those pagan holidays, and the debate about when to celebrate Christmas is more ancient than those pagan holidays. The date of Christmas has nothing whatsoever to do with pagans. Nothing. Actually, most scholars will tell you it most likely happened the other way around. It was the pagans who were jealous of the Christmas celebration, and so they made their holiday based on us, not us doing it based on them. So where does this date come from? Well, the long just story short is this, is it springs up from an old Jewish tradition. And there was a Jewish tradition, I'm not saying this tradition is true, I'm not saying it's false, I'm just saying this is what the tradition is. And the Jewish tradition is that God tends to do his great works on the same day. If God is born on one day, he's going to die on another if he appeared to Moses on this day, then he's going to install this holiday. They just believe when God works in the world, he tends to do things on the same day. And so here's what happened among the Jewish Christian mindset. That was their presupposition. Whether right or wrong, I won't speak to, but that was their presupposition. And biblically speaking, we actually have a really good idea of when Jesus was crucified. Because the Bible gives us the month and it tells us about... So the, the, the Jewish Christians, long story short, they determined the date of the crucifixion as being March 25th. That was, that was what they claimed to determine based on the Bible is that Jesus was born on... Or forgive me, Jesus was murdered on March 25th. So what's the presupposition? That Jesus then came into the world on the same day. He was born on the same day. Well, forgive me, he came into the world on the same day. So, but, but the Jews knew something that our secular society needs to learn better. And that is, when does a human being come into the world? Not when they're born. You're a human being before you're born. It's at conception. So Jesus came into the world on the same day that he left the world. When did he leave the world? March 25th. So when did he come into the world? March 25th. So what's nine months from March 25th? December 25th. So this was actually a Jewish tradition. It was not a pagan holiday. It was not a Constantine thing. It was not a Roman thing. Whether it was right or wrong, I won't speak to, but it wasn't pagan. But that's uh, an important rabbit trail. The, the point is, is that one of the strongest arguments against the December date is Luke chapter 2 verse 8. We just would not expect the shepherds to be out doing this in the month of December. So I tell you, I don't think it really matters that much when we date Christmas, but I would also tell you, be very, very cautious of what you hear in pop culture apologetics about Christmas and all these conspiracy theories about Christian's history. History is always messy. 
History is never simple. History is never black and white. So you should always be very cautious of people who have this very clean black and white view of anything in history. Ask, ask Elder Bill about what started World War II. I guarantee it's a longer story than one sentence. <laughs> history is always complicated. It's never black and white, okay? But anyway, so these shepherds are out in the fields, maybe in December, maybe not. And this angel appears to them. And the text tells us something incredible. They are obviously afraid, as everyone is, when they encounter an angel for the first time. And the angel tells them not to be afraid, which is also common for the angels to say. And the text says in verse 10 why they should not be afraid. And that's because this angel has not come for judgment or condemnation. But this angel has come bringing them, the literal rendition would be gospel. We talk about the gospel. That's a biblical word. It's an important word to Christians. But if you just look at the etymology of the word, it's a very general word. What does gospel mean? Good news. They, they literally, in the Greek, I bring gospel of great joy to you. The angels have come with good news. They've come proclaiming, heralding the gospel. These angels have showed up with the gospel. And I want us to see how incredible this is. Christ has just been born in Bethlehem. The, the Messiah, the Savior of the world, God in flesh. And so these angels show up to make a big deal about it. These angels show up to announce this and to praise it and to glory in it. So who does God choose as the audience for such an incredible event? A handful of shepherds and mostly sheep. I, my whole life I've, I've been in choir. From, from a very little kid all the way up through college and even some post-college. I did some, I just love choir. I love jazz choirs, I love being in choirs. And you work so hard year-round as you're preparing music and memorizing music and learning music. And so when it's time for the big show, you really want people there. You want an audience. Like, I mean, we're dressed up. We're wearing our tuxedos. It's the big night. We've been rehearsing all year for this. It's, it's really kind of a disappointment when you've got this beautiful music. You've been working so hard. You're all dressed up, and you walk out on stage, and there's four people in the auditorium. It's kind of a letdown. What do we have here? At first, it's one single angel, but it doesn't take long, as the text tells us, for the angel that first appears to be surrounded by a heavenly host. God's angelic choir, we're going to get more to the choir thing in a little bit. God's angelic choir has shown up. It's finally, it's concert night. We are not just walking onto a stage, we are entering into the realm of human history. We are entering into human history to sing our song about the greatest thing that's ever happened. And as they walk into their earthly stage, they see a handful of shepherds and a bunch of stinky sheep. And that doesn't stop them. They burst in applause and praise for who God is and what he has accomplished. This is an act of humility on their part. And it's emblematic of much of the Christian story. It's not only emblematic of the entire humiliation of Christ's incarnation. Remember, what, the text tells us he was laid in a manger. And again, there's a whole bunch of debate as to exactly what that is. But here's what we don't debate. Christ's birth was humiliating. 
just for God to become man, just that God would condescend and take manhood on himself is humiliating enough. That's condescension enough. That, that, that takes a kind of humility that we simply cannot comprehend. We really can't. The creator-creature divide, we're on one side of that. So we just, we don't understand. That Christ would even become a human is by itself this incredible act of humility and condescension. But he took it one step further. No, multiple steps further. He was born to a nobody family in a nobody region in a nobody town. And when he was born, they were in Bethlehem. There was no place for them. So he gets kicked, shoved off into the manger. He is just drenching with humility in his birth. And the angels take part in that. The angels who show up to glorify and announce God are willing to condescend themselves to sheep. To shepherds. Who, by the way, shepherds were very unliked in the Jewish culture. Their, their job required them to be very dirty, and so they were constantly unclean. So they were kind of considered people who really weren't able to worship. They were constantly breaking these cleanliness laws. So they were dirty, and they were poor, and they were gross. These were not the most popular people in the Jewish community. And the, shepherd, and the angels have condescended to them and have provided for them a front row seat to the greatest concert the world has ever seen. To them and their sheep. But you want to know what I think this is truly, truly emblematic of? Keep your marker here. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. This is what I really think is being subtly and secretly communicated in this. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning in verse 26. Or let's, let's begin in verse 20. I'm running short on time, but I, we need to hear this. Begin in verse 20. This is a great passage from the Apostle Paul. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning in verse 20. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the great debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God, the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. And then this is what's really key. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. What's Paul saying there? He's reminding the Christians, the first century Christians, who were they? Who was it that found the gospel so appealing? It wasn't the smart people. It wasn't the Greek philosophers. They thought the gospel was stupid. 
Literally, that's what the word moronic is where we get that word foolishness from. They, it was moronic. You're a moron if you're a Christian. That's what the Greek philosophers, the smartest people in all of the Roman Empire, they thought Christianity was stupid. And the smartest men of the Jews didn't believe it either. The scribes and the Pharisees and the debaters, no, they wanted signs. They wanted proof and they didn't have adequate proof. Give me the evidence. You've got none. There wasn't enough evidence for the smart, Greek, for the smart Jews. There wasn't enough philosophy for the smart Greeks. Christianity did not appeal to the smart and to the powerful and to the influential. As Paul preaches to the Corinthian audience, who is he preaching to? Common people. Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise. Not many of you were powerful and rich. And that's because there's this beautiful irony in God not creating a religion that is only accessible to the elite. God chose what is foolish in the world to rebuke the wise. It is everyday common people that God reveals the wisdom of God to. You do not have to have a PhD in astrophysics to know and believe and understand the beauty of the gospel. God is pleased to reveal his gospel and to make his people a group of nobodies. And it's these common, lay, faceless, nameless people that will change the world. And so what do we see as we turn back to Luke? Who is it most deserving of this great angelic announcement? Nobodies. A bunch of nobodies. Not kings, not rulers, not powers, shepherds. And God is pleased to condescend to the shepherds and say, we are here to celebrate with you. Come worship God with us. The shepherds worship and then they are given a subtle command. They're told, here's the sign that you will know who Jesus is. He's the one in the manger. None of the other babies are there. He's the one in the manger. In swaddling clothes. And so they obey. They, they know the angels are saying, go find him. So the text tells us in this verse 15, or forgive me, verse 16, they went with haste. They dropped what they were doing and they obeyed and they went to see the child. And what happened when they finally got there, verse 18, all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. Everyone in the vicinity, they proclaimed the good news that had been proclaimed to them. And what happens? Everyone was filled with wonder. Your translation might say amazement. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. Let me give you just one more soapbox, if you don't mind. There's a song that I used to really not like, but now I do like it. I've seen the error of my ways. It's called, Mary, Did You Know? Christians tend to hate that song, at least in my experience. And the reason they don't like it is because they think this rhetorical question, Mary, did you know, is so silly. Of course Mary knew. We, we studied this two weeks ago. Gabriel came and, and announced the birth of Christ. Gabriel said a lot. He didn't just say, hey, you're going to be born, have a son. He proclaimed the Messiah. Remember, we had six things we determined from that message alone. And so a lot of Christians say, this is condescending. Of course Mary knew. She wasn't an idiot. First and foremost, it's, it's rhetorical. The song is not suggesting she didn't know these things. It's a rhetorical question. It'd be like if I stood here and asked you guys, 
Do you understand how good Jesus is? I'm not literally saying, I think this congregation has no idea. It's, it's just a rhetorical way of joining in on the celebration. But let me just say this. To some degree, I don't know how much Mary did actually know. This is, this is actually a very complex situation we have here. Because if you recall, the Jews had a lot of expectations about the Messiah that Jesus, during his ministry, had to correct. I think Mary had a good grasp. I think she had a healthy, faithful, God-honoring grasp of who Jesus was. But I think there was a lot that was actually beyond her. In other words, what I'm saying is there were times during Jesus' ministry where Mary was, oh my goodness. It wasn't as if every time Jesus did something, yeah, I knew that would happen. Oh, he resurrected? Duh. Gabriel told me that. No. Mary, what is she doing? She's pondering these things. She's meditating. She's trying to take this situation in. There's a lot she knows, but there's a lot she doesn't. We, in that song, we talk about how Jesus was, and Mary, did you know, we talk about how he was going to be king of all the nations. I don't know if Mary did know that. That certainly wasn't the Jewish understanding of the Messiah. Mary is meditating and pondering and soaking these things in, and she is trying to understand the glory of what is happening to her. I think it's a good question. I hope that I have the honor of asking her one day, Mary, what did you know? What were you surprised by? What were you not surprised by? So what is, as we said, what is uh, this, this amazing story of the angels and the shepherds and Mary and the gospel? What, what do we take away from this? Well, I've put it in what I've tried to be a very succinct and helpful way. How you uh, phrase our thesis today is really up to you as long as we get the point. And, and here's what this whole text, I think, is communicating to us. Really, if This is what I want us to take away from this text. Why, why did Luke write this? The appropriate way to respond to the gospel is celebration. This is, from start to finish, a celebratory text. What is Luke trying to drill in our heads here? That this news of Jesus is so good and so glorious, we can't but help but be excited and happy and joyful. From the beginning of the text, we have the angels appearing, announcing the good news, and then the heavenly host shows up and they're praising God, and then the shepherds are amazed, and so they run and they're telling everybody what they saw, and everyone's filled with wonder and amazement. Mary's pondering and treasuring these things in her heart, and then how does the text end? Verse 20, the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God. They couldn't stop worshiping. It's just constant celebration from beginning to end. In other words, here's what this text is revealing to us. That there is something in the message, not just of Christmas, but of the entire gospel that needs to stir our affections and our thoughts. This is not just an answer on a test. Was Jesus incarnate? Yeah, he was the son of God. Yeah. Did, was Jesus born in Bethlehem or Nazareth? Yeah, it was, uh, it was Bethlehem. Okay. We're not just filling our heads with data. They were not just telling them historical truths for them to write down and believe. They were telling them something that changed their hearts. 
It stirred their affections and their thoughts. And as the shepherds went into the town and began telling people, it tells us that, verse 18, all who heard it wondered, or your text might say, were filled with amazement. I have to rhetorically ask us this question. It's really important. Have we lost our amazement? Have we lost our amazement? Is the incarnation just another thing that we believe? Or does it fill us with wonder? Does it fill us with amazement? Now, don't, 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 don't hear me wrong. What I'm not saying is that literally, like verse 20 is how we should live every second of our life. We just do nothing but run around jumping, praising God. We don't eat, we don't sleep, we don't go to work, we don't talk to people. Like the incarnation is so good, let's just praise God until we die. Jesus didn't live that way and he was perfect. So I'm not saying that our whole lives have to be this kind of over-spiritualized, monkish life where we just sit in our room praising God and hope that we die soon. But there is this internal affection that I think throughout the course of human affairs and the fallenness of our broken world, we do truly lose the wonder of what God has done for us. And the beauty of sermons, the beauty of coming to church, the beauty of holidays is it invites us, not in a a condemning way, I'm not trying to condemn you, I'm not trying to shame you, but all of us join together and we come together and we remember the wearies of this, the, the, the things that weary me in this world have bruised me and broken me down and we all can humbly admit I do not treasure the gospel the way I should. And so now is our time corporately to come together and be happy. I think especially this is important for us this year. And I know I keep coming back to this in all of our sermon you know, presentations, and I'm not trying to make a bigger deal than needs to be made, but again, I just have to remind us that it's just like all around us and social media in our lives is, is negativity and displeasure and unhappiness. And quite frankly, there's good reasons for all of that. And so that's why Christmas time truly has broken through at an appropriate moment. Because this is our time as Christians to reset. It's time for us to take a step back and say, you know what? I have a lot to be happy about. This is a good year for me. Because Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Because glory to God in the highest, he has brought peace on earth Having been justified by faith, we now have peace with God. It's time to remember that again. John Calvin put it this way. Speaking of the shepherds in verse 20, he says, Their zeal in glorifying and praising God is an implied reproof of our indolence, or rather of our ingratitude. Let us learn to be so delighted with Christ alone that the perception of his grace might overcome and at length remove us from all distresses of the flesh. What do you do when life gets you down? You remember that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. That God came into the world And that as the angel says, fear not, that is good news. 
We, of all people on the face of the earth, have something to be happy about today. And so what I am calling us to do this Christmas, if you focus, emphasize anything this Christmas, here's what I want you to emphasize. Joy and celebration. Let this Christmas be hearty and happy and merry and glad. Drown out. Don't let Satan bring in, well, what about the government? What about this? And what about this in your personal life? And what about happening this? Drown those out and spend one day and just be glad and celebrate and be joyful and be happy. I'm preaching to myself. I have to ask us this. If we can't be happy, who can? Who can? Who on the face of the earth has reason to be happy if not Christians? This is good news. This is gospel. Christmas really is a time to be merry. Christmas is a time to be joyful, to be glad. But it's not because of some invisible Christmas spirit. It's not because of Santa or just some arbitrary, we'll just make this season the season of joy and sharing and love and let's just make it joy and love. This arbitrary wand-waving Christmas, everyone will be happy. There is a reason why this season fills us with joy. It's because we remember the good news of Christ born in Bethlehem. Let me, let's close with this. You might be wondering, okay, so... I get it. I, I, I want to just enjoy Christ this year. I want to just enjoy God this year. What does that look like? How do I do that? Let's do some life application. The text gives us four ways. This is not an exhaustive list. I'm not saying this is the only way. But the text itself reveals to us four ways that we can manifest and show and demonstrate our gladness at Jesus. So we'll end with these four applications. Number one, if you truly want the world to see how happy you are, how joyful you are, that you are celebrating this year, here's one thing you can do. You ready? Proclaim the gospel. Preach the gospel. What is the first thing that happens in this text? The scene is set, and then the angels show up in verse 10. The angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news. They show up and the first thing they do is they preach the gospel. As a matter of fact, the word gospel, it does mean good news. And that's what we call a transliteration, which essentially means that we didn't have an English word for it. So we just kind of took the Greek. I mean, it, it had already evolved at this point in time, but we just sort of took the word. But the word gospel did have a kind of translation over time. And so the word gospel means good news. But it is also, and this is kind of complicated, but it also came to us down in our English language in another term, evangelion. What does that sound like? Evangelical. Now there's this whole debate nowadays, what is an evangelical? No one actually knows. But the root of the word, you want to know what makes someone an evangelical? It's someone who shares the good news. You are an evangel when you evangelize. That's what makes you an evangelist. It's the proclamation of the good news. The first evangelists are these evangel angels who come and preach, proclaim the good news. The angels know this is news and it's so good, people need to hear it. And who is it that needs to hear it? Anybody in our midst. We're not just going to save this for the important people or the smart people, the people with a lot of influence. Oh, there's a bunch of shepherd and their sheep. We'll preach to them. 
they come and they proclaim the good news. Now you might be thinking, yeah, well, they're angels. That was their job. But what do the shepherds do? We have much more of a connection to the shepherds than we have to the angels. And what does the text tell us? They immediately obey, they go, they find Joseph and Mary, verse 17, and when they saw it, they made known to them the things that had been told concerning this child, and all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. Wherever they go, we don't know, did they go around the town, or is this just to the group? We, we don't know all the details, but the point is this. The shepherds had the gospel preached to them, and they are so overwhelmed with joy and happiness that they go and they start, what's the first thing they do? we got to tell you what we just heard. In other words, what we see here is not a commandment to preach the gospel. We see the preaching of the gospel as the overflow of their joy. You guys won't believe what has happened. Christ has been born. We just saw some angels. We, we, we identify with the shepherds here and we take their example. And we remember the greatest news in all the world has been revealed to us. I can't but help and go and ask people if they've heard about Jesus. Now, I'm not telling you that the text is like, this is a descriptive text. It's not a prescriptive text. So I'm not telling you that you need to do exactly what they did, which is literally leave their job. <laughs> I'm not telling you it's a sin to go into work tomorrow. You don't go into work, just go preach the gospel. Quit your job, go preach. Uh, that would be a too literal application of the text. But the general application of the text is this. It doesn't matter who you are. A king or a lowly shepherd, this news ought to be too good to you that you're not anxious to tell someone about it. The gospel is meant to be preached. It's news. Which is, by the way, this is why we at this church, we do not agree with uh, what used to be really popular in evangelical circles, this old phrase, uh, preach the gospel and when necessary, use words. There's this famous thing in evangelical circles of how we, we don't have to preach the gospel, we just live it. I'm just going to live the gospel. That doesn't make sense. You can't live news. I, here, here, in other words, here, here's what that says. I want you tomorrow to look at the weather forecast. And I want you to tell me the weather forecast, but don't use words. Just live it. I want you to show me that it's going to rain tomorrow by just living it. What does that mean? I mean, I guess you could live consistent with that message. Maybe you bring an umbrella everywhere you go. or I don't, You can live consistently with the message, but you cannot live the message. You cannot proclaim the message with your life. The gospel is news. We are news anchors. We are evangels, and we share the news. We tell people about it. So if you really want people to know how happy you are, prove it. What makes me so happy? I'm so glad you asked. Let me tell you the best news that's ever been told. We want to proclaim the gospel like the angels, like the shepherds. But here's an, another thing that we can do. This might sound like a weird phrase to you, but it is biblical. It comes from 1 Thessalonians. We obey the gospel. You see, the word gospel in the New Testament is used in a very narrow sense, but it can also be used in a very broad sense. And the good news can be described as the Christian faith in general. And the Christian faith comes with expectations of what to believe and how to behave. And we show God our love and our appreciation for what he has done through obedience. Where do I get that in the text? Again, that's what the shepherds do. They are given in verse 12 this sudden, subtle command to go find the child. Here's the sign. Here's what you're looking for. And then the angels leave, and what do the shepherds say, verse 15? 
Let us go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. These were men, shepherds, that were so overwhelmed that they were eager and ready to obey what had been given to them. And they describe it in this text, by the way, even though these are angels, they describe it in this text as obeying the Lord because they know that this is ultimately from the Lord. If you see that in verse 20, the shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. They are praising God for what has come to them. They obeyed God. So if you want to truly show your appreciation, your joy, your gladness to God for what he has accomplished on your behalf, here's what you can do. Be obedient. God, you have been gracious and merciful to me. You have condescended. You have saved me. You have made me new. You have brought peace to me. How can I honor you today? How can I serve you today? Every time we sin, what we are ultimately telling God is we're really not that grateful for what you've done for me. That's what sin is. I'm really not that grateful for what you've done for me, so I'm just going to do my own thing today. We show our gratitude through obedience. So we can proclaim the gospel, we can obey the gospel. What's a third thing we can do? This one's kind of interesting. We can sing the gospel. You want to express gratitude? Sing. Lift your voices and sing. Come to church and sing. Sing at home with your families. Sing, sing, sing. Now, where do I get that in the text? This is an important object lesson and how we need to be very careful not to just believe traditions but actually read the text because the text doesn't actually tell us about singing at all. We think that. We just sang, for example, Hark the herald angels sing. Apparently, Charles Wesley thought they were singing. Now, I agree with him, even though the text doesn't technically say that. Look at verse 13. And suddenly there was an, with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, not singing, <laughs> saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. So the text doesn't technically tell us they were singing, but the reason this has become so popularized is because I do believe context determines us to think that that's what's happening. So I think that's in the text, if not explicitly. And we know this through a couple ways, logic and grammar. Number one, that phrase in verse 13, praising God, that verb there, praising, is very often, almost every time it's used in the Old Testament, it's connected to singing. Almost, not all the time, but almost every time it's used. And additionally, just logically, it's kind of hard to understand how is it that this entire multitude are together repeating this chorus. They're either singing or chanting. And chant is really a form of song. Christians have always understood chant is a form of song. So just logically and grammatically, we have really good reason to assume that this was an angelic choir that they were together in one unified voice, lifting their voices and proclaiming through song, through chant, through corporate proclamation, the good news of God. So if you want to show people how happy you are, come together with your church and lift your voices. We see all throughout the Old and New Testament, singing is a common and natural response to what God does. It's all over the place. And a lot of times it's angels. We are told that angels sing in heaven. Angels sing around the throne of God. Angels sing in the book of Revelation when, 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 when God's enemies are destroyed. And the people of God, you read the book of Exodus. They cross the Red Sea. The waters crush Pharaoh's army. What do the people of God do? 
a worship night, they start singing. And it goes so long, they're singing so much that Miriam has to take the women and their tambourines and the girls go off and do a little girls worship night. I mean that condescendingly, like literally the women went off and did their own worship night. They just sang. <laughs> the longest book in your Bible is a songbook. The, 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 the longest revelation that God gave to us were songs to sing. God loves singing. And singing is a natural and appropriate way for us to express our joy. When you're just so happy about the gospel, praise God from whom all blessings flow. You sing. Don't be afraid to sing. So we proclaim the gospel, we obey the gospel, we sing the gospel, and here's the last thing, this is important, we ponder the gospel. We meditate on the gospel. What did Mary do? How did she respond to this crazy new life she's found herself in? Verse 19, she couldn't keep it all in, but Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. Mary saw the value and the worth of what has been revealed. She treasured them. She hold them dear. She hold them valuable. Metaphorically, she stored them in her heart and she pondered them. She meditated on them. How can you show your gratitude and love for God? Do theology. We have to very much resist this evangelical trend, which is very anti-theology. It's like, we don't want to go deep. We don't want to become eggheads. We don't want to become bookworms. That just gets in the way of preaching the gospel. That just creates divisions because now we have all this stuff to bicker in. But, you know, we, 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 we put our nose in the air at people who want to really know God. But that is an appropriate way to respond. God has revealed the gospel to us and it's extensive and it's comprehensive and it's large and it's incredible. So what do we need to do? We need to think about this stuff. We need to treasure it and ponder it and meditate upon it. So I would encourage you, if you really want to show God your gratitude, then meditate on his word. Memorize his word. Study his word. Read his word. Go to church. Go to Bible studies. Come to classes. We show God how much we love what he has revealed by pondering it and treasuring it and meditating on it. So read your Bibles and read theology books and ask questions and memorize scripture. Be theologians. Show the world God has revealed something to me and it's so precious, it's such a treasure to me, I've got to know it better. I've got to understand it better. Mary just treasured and pondered, I, I want to understand this more. So in conclusion, what am I calling all of us to do this Christmas? Celebrate. Enjoy. Be merry. And if you're looking for tangible ways to do that, proclaim Christ, obey Christ, sing Christ, and study Christ.